Our epistle lesson is found in Romans chapter 8 this morning. We're closing the chapter with verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. And Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we offer our thanks to you. As we hear good news of you being for us, that in Jesus Christ, we can never be separated from your love. And yet, God, our hearts are doubting and disbelieving. And so we ask for your help this morning. As we hear your word, we ask that you would speak and that by your spirit, you would convince us of these things. Drive these truths into our hearts and help us, God. Speak, for your servants are listening. In the summer of 1939, with the likelihood of an air war and also potential invasion by Nazi Germany, the British government devised a scheme to boost what was a drooping public morale. A series of three posters were designed and then they were posted and being published throughout the country. They were put together by the Ministry of Information who was in charge of all communications and some would say propaganda during World War II. The most famous of these posters features a crown and the crown rests on a bold red background with these simple words on it. Keep calm and carry on. Simple, clear, quintessentially British. These words have, of course, become famous once again. The posters were rediscovered in the year 2000 and were used particularly during the pandemic. And over the past several weeks, we've seen that the Apostle Paul expresses a similar sentiment. But it's a sentiment not grounded in what you could call British Stoicism. It's rather the same sentiment that is grounded in Christian conviction because we've seen that as we endure the sufferings and the trials, the troubles and the setbacks, the distresses and the duress of life in a broken world, where we are promised present sufferings, that God provides resources, and he provides those resources through the gospel that enable the believer 
against all of our doubts and against all of our duress to keep calm and to carry on. This is critical because all of us taste the sorrows and all of us taste the afflictions of life in this world. And those sorrows and those afflictions are strong enough and they can be bitter enough to challenge even the most mature among us. It shakes and it rattles our faith. And so as we read these nine verses this morning, it's essential for us to ask and answer the question, what exactly does God provide us with? What does he resource us with in order to encounter these sufferings and setbacks that were promised in this life? And briefly this morning, from these verses, we'll see three things. The first you find in verse 32 is that we have a certain inheritance. Paul begins his summary here of the first eight chapters with a series of rhetorical questions. In verse 32, he asks, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The verse communicates something of God's commitment to us, to our sinful and to our weary world. The verb used is an interesting one. It can be translated gave up or delivered. And this is not the first time that we've encountered this word that Paul uses very often through the book of Romans. But the first time was in chapter 1. It's found there in verse 24, where we learn that God gave up or delivered humans over to the desires of their hearts. Because we exchanged the truth about God for a lie, because we craved our own wisdom above God's wisdom, we were delivered over to our own desires. And many people stopped reading Romans at that chapter, recognizing that there's a bleak message there. But the message doesn't end there because God's not done delivering or giving up things at that point. But God's answer to the human catastrophe, to the tragedy of human sin, is not simply to leave us in our own desires. It's not to give us up there, that we just remain there. But God then gives up his son. God acts on our behalf. That God intervenes in the situation. He delivers the son up on our behalf that he would taste our condemnation that we justly deserve. He's given up for us all. And so Paul's logic here is rather simple. That if God didn't hesitate to give up the son for you, how is he not then going to give you all things? He has done the greater thing in delivering Jesus up on your behalf. And so now he will certainly and surely do this lesser thing of giving you all things. He will, of course, accomplish this latter thing. And this latter thing is important to explore, though. Sounds rather grandiose to give us all things. And it sounds grandiose because it is. What is he referring to when he says all things? He's referring to your inheritance. It's the inheritance that's referenced in verse 17 of this same chapter. We are told that as adopted sons and daughters, as children of God, who've been adopted through the true son, who stood in our place, that we will then share in his inheritance, that we are rightful and full heirs. 
And that inheritance is nothing less than the world remade, made new, freed from corruption and decay. This is what Paul sketches for us in verses 18 through 25, where he takes himself to the very extent of human language to describe the glory of what will be. That when Jesus returns and the creation is freed from its groaning, from its pain and its suffering, from the thistles and thorns that inhabit it due to human sin, but that it will be raised, that the powers of resurrection that came upon Jesus' body, that those same powers will visit the creation and raise it to new life, and that our bodies too, all those who believe in Jesus, will be joined with him in that inheritance of God dwelling with his people once again, of life in the world as it was intended to be, of no more thorns and thistles, of no more death and decay, of no more sadness and sorrow. That's the world that you will inherit. And the gospel's argument with you is that if God has delivered the Son, if that historical event has happened, then God will certainly give you that full inheritance. It's already settled. This is your first resource you have. In the middle of all trials, in the middle of all trouble, in the middle of suffering and setbacks, is that the inheritance is certain and it belongs to you. Second, we also have a secure standing. As we follow into verses 33 and 34, more questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? The questions turn here. And they take up a legal language, providing for us a glimpse of our security as those adopted sons and those adopted daughters. And it's important to recognize the ground, the foundation, the root of that security, because that foundation is not grounded in your great love for God. The foundation of your security is not grounded in your commitment to him. It's not grounded in your accolades or your achievements or anything that you can offer to him. But rather, your security is found in one very unique person. It's helpful to recognize that Paul here is quoting actually from Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 9. Isaiah 50 is a provocative chapter because it is one of the four songs of the suffering servant who was to come to Israel. Of course, we know the fulfillment of that suffering servant was none other than Jesus. But listen to the song in Isaiah 50, verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. This is the suffering servant speaking. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who shall contend with me, let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. 
Who will declare me guilty? It is our Lord Jesus asking a series of questions. He asks, who will contend with me? In my righteousness, who will attempt to take me down? Who is my adversary? Who can compete with me? Who will declare me guilty? And in those questions, he also makes a series of assertions. I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Behold, the Lord helps me. And friends, this is the result of recognizing that it is the Lord Jesus who makes these assertions. It is the Lord Jesus who asks these questions. And he is the one righteous one who stood in your place and was condemned on your behalf, but then he was raised because he was righteous. And death couldn't hold him. And he destroys the power of death. And so your security, your foundation, the reason that no condemnation can visit you, the reason that no charge can be made against you, it's not because of your own record. If you're left to that record, the charges would be full and complete. But because you stand in Jesus, and because he was condemned on your behalf, but because he was vindicated, and because he's righteous, there is a righteous verdict passed over your life. There is no indictment. There is no accusation to come that this has been handled and that verdict is secure. That Jesus says, you are mine. He declares that. He has made that statement that you belong to him. And now today, the living Jesus in his body stands at God's right hand. And he's not there passively with his feet kicked up. No, he is there, and he is interceding on your behalf. And he pleads your case. You stand before God in him, and on account of nothing else. But on account of him, you are eternally secure, and you are certain of that standing with God. And in the day of doubt, and in the day of distress, when everything feels shaken, when everything about your world is overturned, when nothing feels secure, this is the security you have, that Jesus has looked upon you and he has said, you are mine. And so when we feel forsaken by God, this is the critical truth that we must hold to. We belong to him through his son. And finally, we also have a sure promise. This is where Paul turns in verses 35 through 39. He asks yet another question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Then in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so in verse 38, Paul says that I am sure. Sure is perhaps a weak translation. It's not the best word in the English language because this means something like firm and settled. Something that he is convinced of, persuaded of without a doubt, that he is sure that nothing will be able to separate him and nothing will be able to separate you and nothing will be able to separate me from the love of God that has been given in Jesus. We are not forsaken in the midst of our trials and we will not be forsaken in the end. And so it's critical for us to recognize that. And especially in the middle of all of the hardships that we endure. Because those hardships are real and they're true. They visit our congregation week by week and month by month and year by year. At times in trickles and at times in floods. And when they come, they challenge our faith. Certainly and surely, it's hard to withstand. But yet, friends, the most important thing for us is to not to work out the answers to those questions in the midst of our sufferings, but rather it is to learn the logic of the gospel so deeply, and perhaps especially in seasons when we are not suffering. To learn the logic of the gospel that God is for me. That God is for me in Jesus. And so what can be against me? Who is my adversary? That this great God who's made me his own and given me the sum of his teaching, that he is for me in Jesus. That there is no adversary that can take me down. That he uses even the evil things of this fallen and broken world for my good. That this is the power of God. And this is the plan of God. And so we are sure and we are certain. We have a settled confidence of this truth. That God is for us. And do you believe that? Do you believe down in the core of your convictions. That God is for you. Do I believe down at the core of my heart that God is for me? That in eternity, before the foundations of the world, he foreknew you. That he set you apart, that he made you his own. And that, yes, in time, he called you, persuading you and freeing you to believe in Jesus. And he has justified you and freed you from all condemnation. He's taken all the weight of your sin and all your mess and all your failures and he's canceled it out and he's given you a new verdict and that then he has also glorified you that he's granted you this great hope of a new world a sure inheritance certain this is the sure promise that as you build your life upon these resources you are never forsaken that your God is for you and friends, in the midst of our own sorrows and our own afflictions, we tend to ask God questions. 
It's not wrong to ask these questions. The Bible itself asks them. Simply read the Psalms. We ask, why this? We ask, what's the purpose of this particular suffering? We ask, how did it come to this? We ask God whether he's listening to us in our prayers. And then perhaps most devastatingly, we at times ask the question, do you care, God? Where are you? And those questions are real. And we need to ask them. But as we ask them, we, almost, we also must hear God lovingly and gently, pastorally, like a good shepherd, pressing back with questions of his own. We only don't get to question him. He interrogates us as well. If I am for you, who possibly can be against you? Who can bring a charge against you? Who is to condemn? I am the one who justifies. Christ Jesus was the one who died and who has been raised and who is now interceding for you. What shall separate you from my love in Christ Jesus? And friends, we must hear those questions. And in the midst of our doubt and in the midst of our distress and all the trials and the dangers, all the fears and the trouble, it is these questions from God that draw us back to the resources that belong to us because of his free grace in our lives. So Paul begins the passage. He asks the question, what then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to all of this, to this inheritance, to this secure standing? What shall we say to this sure and certain promise? What we shall say is that we have a certain inheritance. What we shall say is that we have a secure standing because it's grounded in Jesus. And what we shall say is that we have a sure promise that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And so say it. Say it again and again. Confess it to one another. Proclaim it to each other. Pray it. Share it with your family. Write it down. Whisper it to yourself in the midst of your doubts and the hard days. Sing of it in your songs. Say it. What shall we say to these things? We shall say that we are his and he is ours. That God has irrevocably made us his own. That he is our possession and that he is our one good. And so let's say it. Let's confess it. God is our good. He is for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of our lives, the sufferings that we endure, you speak a word that's difficult to encounter. Because so often in our experience, we do feel forsaken and left behind. And we ask questions concerning your care. 
and yet you challenge these questions and you take us into the logic of the gospel, the commitment you have for us in your son, that you have set us apart and you have bought us and you have ransomed us in that same son in whom you've done these things, he now intercedes for us. Convince us of all these truths and of our great inheritance that lies ahead. And help us, O God, in all of our weakness to know that nothing can separate us from your great love that's been revealed in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.